0: with me, let's pray. God, that's why we gather here, because we are men and women of faith, and yet we're not just blind in our faith. We have uh, reasons to believe, and our belief is focused. It's focused on you as our Father, as your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior, and your Spirit as the one who gives us life this side of heaven. So God, as we uh, as wrestle with some truth today on a relatively touchy subject, I pray, God, that you might give us open hearts, engaged minds. And that, uh, Lord, as always, we pray that you would just speak to us through your word. Uh, We do believe that your word is uh, life-giving to our souls and to our minds. And uh, we thank you for the setup that we've had in worship now. And so speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, about 50 years ago, there were three subjects that one didn't talk about in polite society. Do you remember what they were? Sex, politics, and religion. That's the world that your parents and your grandparents grew up with. I remember hearing a lot about it. It was a world and culture in which you didn't talk about your sex life or anybody else's. You didn't ask somebody who they voted for, what party they supported. And religion, even denominational choice, were personal and private matters. And it's amazing to me how times have changed, right? I mean, through the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the 1970s and the rise of modern-day evangelical Christianity when Jimmy Carter in the 1970s came out and said he was a born-again Christian. And then we had the social issues like Roe v. Wade and prayer in schools that opened up the whole political arena to public debate. I mean, a lot has changed. In the world that you and I have lived in, we now live in a world in which you can talk about sex, politics, and religion until you're blue in the face. I mean, they are definitely not taboo subjects in today's culture. But think about it, as these things have become more commonplace conversations at the water cooler or at the dinner table, something has had to take their place as forbidden subjects. I mean, every culture has things that they don't want to talk about collectively in polite society. And though experts suggest quite a few things that we don't want to talk about today, what many put at the top of their list, look up here on the screen, are parenting money and death. I think we're onto something here, that sex, politics, and religion used to be things you don't talk about in polite society, but now it's parenting, money, and death. I mean, folks, I realized 20 years ago when I got my first pastor position in a church that most parents didn't want anybody telling them how to parent nor discipline little Billy and Susie. Do you remember when that changed? I mean, when I was a kid growing up, if my neighbor caught me doing something in his yard, running through his yard or whatever, and he didn't like it, he'd grab me by the neck, swap me on the back behind, and then take me to my parents. And my parents didn't call family services or the cops or anything like that. They'd apologize for me, and then they'd discipline me themselves. I can't even imagine doing that to one of my neighbor's kids today. Can you? I can't even imagine telling my neighbor how to parent their kid today. I mean, the reality is they'll listen to Dobson, maybe Tim Kimmel, some of the experts, but gone are the days where people want to have a casual conversation of how they're parenting their kid. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but you also don't go around asking people today how much they make, or how much their house costs, or how much that new Porsche set them back. I mean, these are kind of awkward questions, to say the least. Money's okay as a subject on Bloomberg.com or Fortune magazine or a personal conversation with your financial advisor, but there aren't too many conversations outside of that on a personal level. And for very different reasons, tell me if this also isn't true, death is not something that the average modern 21st century American wants to talk about. I mean, we're skittish about talking about death. And I believe that one of the reasons that this is so is because our modern culture, with all of its technological and medical advances, has been able to prolong life, right? We've been able to cheat death. We've been able to at least put it off a couple of decades, more so than our ancestors ever could. I mean, some people don't realize this, but, you know, if you were fighting during the Civil War 150 years ago and you got shot in the arm, there's a really good chance you would die of an infection, Or say if you were living during the Civil War times back 150 years ago and you had eight children. There is a good chance that one or two of them, statistically speaking, wouldn't see adulthood. In other words, just three or four generations ago in our culture, people were faced with death as a daily reality all the time they had to face it head-on they didn't have any choice and though we've been obviously not been able to get rid of death we live in a culture now that because we've been able to prolong it we don't want to talk about it very much in fact quite frankly we'd like to be able to cheat it some more I mean our culture today is obsessed doing all we can to deny aging and to put off deaths timelines have you noticed that We get facelifts and tummy tucks as we get older. We spend billions on creams alone to get rid of those aging lines. We even replace body parts like knees and hips and hearts and kidneys all in an attempt to live longer. And don't get me wrong, folks, it's certainly not bad that we do this. I mean, I think it's actually pretty good and fine. But let's face it, we do all of this without ever really wanting to talk about our eventual death. We just want to prolong it and even avoid it. And I think there's some things we're going to see as we go along this morning that's unhealthy for the human soul about that. You know one of the things that really has clued me into this over the years that lets me know that our culture is this way is that even doctors who are around death all the time don't really want to talk much about it. I'm not saying all doctors, but but many of them. I mean, when was the last time your doctor said to you, you know, why put that stent in? I mean, with the way that you eat, it's a losing battle anyway, so why don't we just call it a day and send you over to the other side, and if you know Jesus, it's not going to be so bad anyways. I mean, when was the last time you ever had a doctor say something like to you? They don't. Even when they give you the bad news that you're going to die, they don't say, hey, dude, I got some bad news. You're going to die. What they say is, well, there's nothing more we can do, right? Well, there's just nothing more we can do. And sometimes I want to say, why don't you just say it? You're going to die. You're going to die. Your time is now. I mean, you know, really, when you think about it, folks, because we don't want to talk about death in our culture today, there's only two people left that are going to talk about death, and that's pastors and undertakers, Right? I mean, like pastors and morticians are the only people that you find talking at all about death, and undertakers do it because they have to. You pay them to talk about death. And the cool thing is, I don't need to be paid to talk about death. If you're a Christian, neither to you. We get to talk about death, and quite frankly, uh, death has some pretty good things to it, as we're going to see as we go along today. Billy Graham, the great evangelist who has never been known to be all that funny, uh, once said something with a tint of humor in his voice that I found funny. He said this. Look up here on the screen. He said, death is the most democratic experience in life because we're all going to get a chance to participate. (laughs) Death is the most democratic experience in life. You're all going to get a chance to participate. If there was ever a reality-based statement, that's one. And it's a true statement, because though you probably aren't going to hear about it being talked about at work, you're not going to hear about it on Fox News or CNN.com this week, and certainly probably not going to hear about it from even doctors and cultures today, the reality is, is that someday each and every one of us are going to die. But we're going to die, and it might be real soon, it might be a long way off, none of us knows for sure, but we do know that it's going to happen someday, and we might as well talk about it now so that we can deal with it when it comes. Doesn't that just seem to make sense? And thankfully, the Bible, the book that you and I rally around, doesn't shy away from this subject at all. We'd be kind of shocked if it did, right? I mean, it's a book about God and the afterlife and human beings, so if it didn't talk about death, we'd be kind of suspect, but it does talk about death. And in an ironic way, get this, the Bible tells us very life-giving things about death. Isn't that ironic? It gives us life-giving truths about this thing called death. And probably one of the most honest and forthright comments about death is found in the book that we're studying this spring here at Scottsdale Bible, the book of 2 Peter. It's not a very long statement about death, but it's right to the point, very helpful for you and me in talking about death, and it's found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Peter 1, verse 12. We're going to read up through this verse 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, the scripture will be up here on the screen in just a second here. And let's read along, and we're going to park pretty much in front of this scripture for our time today, and we're going to look at one more as we wrap up here in a little bit. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time to recall these things. Now, folks, It is hard not to miss the poetic and repeated theme Peter gives us here about death. He says, as long as I'm in this body, and then he says the putting off of my body is going to be soon, and then after my departure, which assumes that he's going somewhere. Don't miss this. Three statements all about the putting off of one's body and going somewhere else and contained in this, as far as I can see it, is a two-part challenge that Peter gives to you and me, two critical things that he wants us to know about death that is more than going to prepare us for that day when it comes for you and me. And I'm going to give it to you all in one statement here now, and then we're going to break it down. And here's a statement, and that is that we need to face our own death head-on with loads of hope. I think that's a challenge Peter's giving to you and me, to face your own death head-on. We'll see what that means in a minute. And with loads of hope. This is why I call it life-giving. And so let's break this down into bite-sized chunks. First, notice that he's telling us that we can face our own death head-on. We can face our own death head-on. He he says there in verse 14, he says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And now folks, what I would submit to you he's doing here is he's modeling for us what it's like to face one's own death, to face it head on. You know, it's fascinating. Bible experts actually kind of spar over what Peter is really getting at here when he says that I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as Jesus made it clear to me. Uh, Some argue that this is through a recent special revelation that Peter was giving. In other words, Jesus appeared to him or gave him a very strong impression that he was going to die soon. That's what I think is going on here. But others argue that what Peter is referring to is a statement that Jesus made to him 30 years previous. Remember this in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 18 to 19, right before Jesus was ascended into heaven, he said, Peter, you're going to die some way along the same path that I died. And so some people argue that Jesus is, or Peter's referring back to that statement, and he just has this impression that that time is now going to be soon, now that he's older. And we don't know exactly what Peter means here, but I think that what he's getting at here is that the resurrected Jesus told him he was going to die directly and recently told him this. The reason I believe that is because we have other instances in the New Testament where God, Jesus, appeared directly to the apostles, In 2 Corinthians 12, we have Paul saying that Jesus appeared to him directly and gave him some special revelations. I mean, these guys were writing writing the New Testament. So, of course, God would appear to them at times. And I believe God did this with Peter. And yet, quite frankly, it doesn't matter. Because whether you believe that what is happening here is that Jesus told this to Peter 30 years ago and that he's now conjuring it up or whether you believe like I do that Jesus actually made this known to Peter more recently that he was going to die. Either way, What we read is that Peter is saying he knows he's going to die soon, like real soon, and notice that he's not in denial about it, he's not depressed, he's not freaking out and somehow trying to prevent it. No, he's writing a letter talking freely and positively about it, facing it head on. And I think there's something in this for you and I. I think there's a great challenge here in the form of some wonderful modeling that Peter is giving us to face our own death with the same honest Positive perspective. I guess what I'm trying to say, folks, is that I think Peter's response to the news of his impending death is awfully dissimilar to how so many today respond to their death, even to those who might have been faced with their own mortality and death through a sickness or an illness. And there's a great challenge to you and me to not do that, but to face it head on without denial, without being all bummed out, and without freaking out and somehow trying like crazy to ward off what is going to be inevitable someday. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight to live or that if you have a physical ailment, you shouldn't do all you can to treat it so that you might live longer years with your family and loved ones. Of course we should do that. I'm simply suggesting that there's a difference between on the one hand desiring to stay here and live and even fighting to do so, and yet on the other hand, not being able to face your own death head-on when the day finally comes. And I would submit to you that many, if not most Americans, and even many Christians are really good at the former and we're really bad at the latter. In other words, we're really good at fighting death. We're not really good at facing death. And just take it from a guy who's been a pastor now for 20 years, a Christian for 25 plus years, and that I've walked so many people as you're going to see through right up to death's door. And I've been amazed at how many of them really weren't prepared to face it head on that anxiety and fear and terror of the unknown grip their souls even those who know christ and have been following him and and it's just not the way it's supposed to be there's a famous poet a few years back dylan thomas who said this he said that death is about going gentle into that good night death is going gentle into that good night and i think that's the mantra of christians that when we die, we go gentle into that good night. From this perspective, it seems like a night, but it's a good night. As we go, as we're going to see in a minute, to be in the arms of our Savior and of our Father. The first part of Peter's encouraging challenge to us when it comes to death is that you and I have the capacity to face it head on. No denial, no depression, no anxiety needed. Now, Once you get this, once you get the idea that you can and should face your own death head-on, the only question remains is how. I mean, how, Jamie, can we face death so squarely? I mean, what is it that could allow us to be non-denial-oriented and not depressed and all that anxious about the prospect of an impending death? That's the key question. And folks, I want you to know I'm a realist here. I really am. I mean, I know most people, even many Christians, are very fearful of death. I've walked people right up to its door. My first pastorate, I walked a 28-year-old man with AIDS right up to the door of his death. And my last pastorate, a 39-year-old woman dying of cancer and an 8-year-old son right up to the door of death. Right before I left Cleveland, I journeyed with an older man who had ALS right up to the door of death and countless others. I mean, I've been there, and I know that there are some people who are very fearful of death itself, others fearful of the process of dying, still others who had kind of a quiet reserve based on a lot of unknowns. And yet it's certainly not uncommon for people to feel anxiety, even terror, and that's what makes it so hard to face death head-on. And so in light of this, I want to share with you a second key thing that I believe Peter is getting at here, that I believe was the blaring background noise of the entire theology of death that surrounded him in the Bible, something that can add a tremendous amount of peace and courage as you and I face our own death someday. And here it is. Look up here on the screen. And that is to learn to approach death with an assurance of your eternal destiny. You can do this. You can learn to approach your death even now if it's years and years away with an assurance of your eternal destiny. And I promise you, if you can do that, you can go into that gentle night as Dylan Thomas writes about. And that's exactly what I believe Peter is getting at here. He's challenging us to develop a theology, a deep, strong, abiding surety of death of where we're going and why. Uh, To be sure, I want you to look again at the passage before us here that Peter writes about here. And and his word choice of describing his death contains the clues for you and I. It's very interesting, if not revealing. Look again at verses 13 to 14. He says, for as long as I am in this body, and then in verse 14 he says "Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. And, And so don't miss it twice there. He mentions this idea of a body that he's right now in, that he's going to be putting off Soon. Very interesting picture. Uh, the Greek word that Peter uses for body here that he wrote in in the original language that he wrote this in is the Greek word skenoma. Skenoma. A fascinating word for Peter to use. It's not the usual Greek word that the New Testament writers use for body. That would be the Greek word soma. We have a youth group here called, or a singles group called soma. It used to be called soma north. When it was at the north campus, it means body, body of Christ. Peter didn't use that word for body here. He uses that word "skenoma," which is a more rare word that, get this, literally means tent or dwelling. It carries with it the idea of some kind of outer structure, picture that, some sort of external housing that serves to protect what dwells in it, a tent or a house. And so the question becomes, well, what dwells in this tent or this external housing, Peter, that you're about to put off? And we know what he's thinking because in his first letter he mentions it and then in the next chapter that we're going to get to in a couple of weeks he mentions it and that's his soul. His soul. Don't miss that immaterial, eternal part of him that makes him in the image of God, his soul. That's what he's saying lives in this outer tent, this body. And folks, theologians call what Peter is talking about here a body-soul dualism or a body-soul-spirit triad if you factor in some other scriptures, but it basically gets you to the same place. It simply refers to the fact that all human beings, because we are made in the image of Almighty God, are both material as well as immaterial in nature. In other words, we have temporal and finite bodies, but we also have immaterial and eternal souls because we're made like God. It's a body and a soul. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us physical and spiritual. I love how one Bible expert commenting on this passage years ago says this. Look up here on the screen. He says, The natural body is but a tabernacle for the soul, a tent to dwell in during our earthly pilgrimage, not a permanent habitation. So track this. It's a body-soul dualism. In a very rare way, Peter's mindset was, I'm not just a body, I'm a soul inhabiting a body. An eternal soul having having a very non-eternal temporal body. And his point is that all human beings, including me and you, are made this way. That we are all eternal souls housed in temporal bodies, and that once you get this, your view of death is radically altered. Because you don't see death as the final end now. As simply the destruction of your body, six feet under, lights out. But you see death more as the shedding of your temporal, fragile body. And now your eternal soul moves on to God, your maker, and the one who has offered you redemption this side of heaven. That's why Peter can so confidently and boldly say, as long as I am in this body, I'm putting off my body. And then I love how he says it, after my departure. And again, if you're tracking with this thing with open mind, you say, what do you mean after your departure? I mean where are you going and he answers that for us he says i'm going to be in heaven with my father and with his son jesus and with the holy spirit i mean that's what he's saying here and folks that's why i read his challenge to say to you and me learn to approach death with an assurance of your eternal destiny because we're all eternal souls housed in temporal bodies and we're all going to live eternally that's the biblical mindset but notice however that I read Peter's challenge to us to approach death in assurance of your eternal destiny. Now listen close. Do you see that word there? An assurance of your eternal destiny. In other words, an assurance of what your eternal destiny is going to be like, where you're going to spend it, and who you're going to spend it with. You see, one of the things that the Bible makes clear, folks, and I mean so life-givingly clear, is that each of us can have solid assurance of our eternal destiny with God when we understand the gospel of Jesus and take him up on his offer to spend eternity with him. And some of you are saying, what are you talking about? I want to share with you one more passage before we part here today that I believe adds crystal clarity to this idea of, of where are you going to spend Eternity. And it's very, very positive in nature. It's First John 5, verses 11 through 13. And so look up here on the screen or turn there in your Bibles and, and, and look at what 1 John 5, 11 through 13 says. It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, Think about that last phrase there. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Link together right there in your mind, believe and know. I mean, folks, these are the two connecting rods of assurance. Namely, that when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you trust him as Lord and Savior, the only one capable of forgiving your sins, then John says you can know that you have eternal life. So how do we know where we're going? That it's not just eternal, but eternal happiness with God? It's through our faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us and what he has promised. That's what the Bible makes very clear. That assurance, this thing that you and I are all looking for when our time comes, is solidly linked to our faith and trust, our belief in Jesus Christ. And all I can tell you, folks, is that this works. That for countless individuals that I've observed over the years, when their time has come to face their own death, when they have faced it head-on with the assurance of where they're going because of their faith in Jesus, that they have died with loads of peace and hope in their soul. And it really works. When I was pastoring back in Cleveland for this previous six years before I came here, I met a gal right when I moved to Cleveland that I will never forget as long as I live. Her name was Tina. And Tina was a barber, not a hairdresser. She made that very clear to me. I'm a barber in the little town that I was pastoring in. And Tina was one of these larger-than-life, very rough-cut individuals. She had been a Christian only for a few months when I first met her. She had just come to Christ as I moved to town, and she'd come from a very, very difficult background. I mean, Tina was the kind of gal who had two children from two different men, and, and she was a barroom gal, and, and again, very rough, and just what you see is what you get with Tina. But her life had recently and drastically changed as she had given up a, a lot of the decadence of her life. She was 39 years old and had an 8-year-old son, and, uh, and now her life was radically changed her coming into a relationship with Christ. And she was excited about it. And everybody that knew Tina knew about this. And so when she first met me, because she was coming to the church, she said, Pastor, I'm going to start cutting your hair. In fact, I've blocked out an hour for your first haircut, because I also want to tell you my testimony. It was the shortest haircut, or the long, yeah, shortest hair I'd ever had, and the longest haircut that I've ever had. And Tina just, man, she blessed me. She just cut my hair and told me her whole story. It was an amazing story of her coming to faith. And it was really exciting. At that point, about two months later, she also met the love of her life, Gordon, and I got the wonderful opportunity to marry them. And their wedding was one of the most honest, raw weddings I've ever done. I mean, it was, it was definitely a redneck wedding, but it was one of the most honest, raw weddings I've ever done. I loved it. Halfway through the wedding, I kid you not, I wouldn't believe it, I didn't see it. Halfway through the wedding, they stopped the ceremony. They hit the play button on their boombox and played the Newsboys, like some rockin' Newsboys song. And Tina just stood up there with her hands extended high, and Gordon, they just worshiped God. To this boombox newsboys song right in the middle of their wedding. It was a touching moment. I thought, well, now I've seen it all. And, uh, and, and they were on their way. Nice eight year old boy now had a dad. Three months later, I got the call from Gordon, and he said, Pastor, it's bad. And uh, Tina had gone to the hospital, and you see, Tina didn't have health insurance before she met Gordon. She was one of those 30, 40 million people that we read about that don't have health insurance. She could never afford it. Now that she married Gordon, she did, and she'd had back pain for two years before she met Gordon. I'd known about that, and every time she went to the emergency room for back pain, they said, well, it's probably a slip disc or something like that, and gave her some meds. And now that she had health insurance, they did an MRI, and she had stage four advanced cervical cancer, and it had spread into her bladder. And outside of a miracle, they said, there's not a lot we can do. And so they sent Tina home, and they did some radiation and some chemo. But let's just say that the next year of her life was, was not a good year at all. I mean, I journeyed with Tina, and there was a lot of pain, a lot of discouragement, as you can imagine, just a very, very difficult road for her. I mentioned you earlier that Tina was a guy who was full of life, and even though death was coming upon her, she was still full of a lot of life. I mean, just a lot of honesty. I'll never forget one moment when I went to visit her, we would spar back and forth because she didn't accept lightly the little, you know, Christian things that I threw around her. She would always fight me on and fight back, and, and one day I said something to her in a very challenging mode, and I turned my back for a second, and I caught out of the corner of my eye that she had, had, had given me a gesture that you give to people when you drive. Do you all know what I'm talking about? I mean, I was shocked. I really couldn't believe it. I, I, and I said to her, I said, did you, did you just do what I thought you did? And she said, I'm mad at you. I said, well, I know you're mad at me, Tina. I said, but in 20 years, I've never had somebody do that to me in a pastoral context. I said, maybe on the road, but I said, you got guts. I said, you just did that to your pastor. And she said, well, I'm mad. And she said, and by the way, I see you more like my brother who is a pastor, which I thought was kind of cool. And she said, and I do that to my brother all the time. And so I thought, okay. About a month later, I went to see Tina, and this time I I brought an elder with me, and uh, I did too, I did, and I also brought our worship pastor, because I figured, you know, have him play the guitar, elder there, she won't do any of that stuff, and so um, she was having a really, really bad day, and uh, she was in a lot of pain, and she was really down spiritually. So again, brand new Christian, single mom, really down, and uh, it was a very tender moment. She started weeping, and she said to me, "Um, I'm going to hell. She said, I'm going to hell. And I said, oh dear, you're not going to hell. Why do you think you're going to hell? She said, you do not understand the things I did before I became a Christian. She goes, there is no way, we've all heard this before, there's no way that God could forgive me. And she said, even now, I think things that I shouldn't think and I say things that I shouldn't do. And I want to say, yeah, and you, and you do things with your fingers you shouldn't do. And, you know, and, and she said, but I didn't say that. She said, uh, you, know, and you just don't understand, Jamie. She goes, there's just no way. And I, and, and, I, and, I, and I just don't know if I can believe all this. That's what she said to me. Now, folks, one of the reasons I ask you to read the Bible so often and that we study it regularly is because it's at moments like those that we better know the Word of God. Amen? So I said to her, I said, Tina, let me ask you a question. I grabbed my Bible right off the table there, and I said, Tina, let me ask you a question. Before I read you the past, I'm going to read you. I said, um, has there been a point in time in the past where you know... That you have accepted Jesus Christ, that you have believed in Him for for eternal life as your Lord and as your Savior. Do you do you know? Can you point to a time where that was very very real to you? And she said, "Well, of course." And I said, "Good. I was hoping you'd say that because I've seen that in you. I said I've heard your testimony." I baptized you on the day when you gave your confession of faith. I was there when you pushed the play button with the newsboys during your wedding and you worshiped like he was coming back tomorrow. I said, if you have not come to a point where you've accepted Christ and the rest of us are just dead in the water. I said, I know that you've placed your faith in Christ. But right now, you're really hurting. Right now, your faith is weak. Right now, you can't even bear the thought of leaving your son and and you're you're very distraught. Let me read you a passage, however. And what passage do you think I read her? 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And then I repeated verse 13. I said, Tina, let's personalize it for you. I write these things to you, Tina, who believe in the name of the Son of God. I said, now you finish it for me. Why did he write that to you? And she said, that I may know that I have eternal life. And I said, exactly. I said, you might not feel it. and, and, And you have other things telling you otherwise right now. I know you're hurting. But you can know that you have eternal life, dear because you've trusted in Christ, and he's never letting go. About two weeks after that, um, Tina was uh, on Sunday night in the emergency room. She was so fighting death, she was flitting back and forth between the hospice of Western Reserve, which was a wonderful hospice facility, and then going to the emergency room. She was in the emergency room that night saying, isn't there anything more you can do? And she finally had enough, and she called me on the phone, and Gordon was there too, and she said to me, Jamie, she said, is it okay that I just want to go home and be with Jesus. Am I, am I okay to do that? Folks, if anybody ever asks you that at an appropriate time, your answer is, of course. I remember saying to Tina, of course it's okay. I've been waiting for you to get to that point. It's okay to want to go home and be with him. Three days later on a Wednesday, Gordon called me and he said, it's time. I drove to the hospice of Western Reserve. I spent all afternoon there. And Dylan Thomas is right. I watched a lady go gently into the night, gently into that good night, with her 8-year-old son and a new husband right by her side. And at the appropriate time, Gordon pushed the play button and the newsboys came on as we ushered Tina into glory. It was a moment in time. Here's my point to you, is that if a brand-new Christian, 39-year-old single mom with a sultry past... Somebody who is very, very emotional, up and down every day in her life and faith. If somebody like her can enter death head-on with loads of assurance, you can. And I can. Amen? That's the message Peter is giving us. That we don't have to approach death like everybody else in our culture. We're Christians, for crying out loud. And we can approach death like Christians. Many of you know who the professional golfer Paul Azinger is. Azinger's had a very, very successful golfing career, winning multiple championships and earning, what, I looked it up on the internet yesterday, about $14 million in his life so far. But in 1993, after winning another PGA championship, and now with 10 tournament victories, to his credit, Azinger, who was only 33 at that time, was diagnosed with cancer. Many of you track that. And as you can imagine, this rocked his world. Listen to what he wrote at that time. He said, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. He says, then another reality hit me even harder. I'm going to die eventually anyways, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a question of when. Everything I accomplished in golf became meaningless to me. All I wanted to do, he says, was live. And so like any of us would do, fight cancer, he did. And eventually, as you guys know, he beat it. Good news for him and his family. But interestingly, his battle was not over yet. Because you see, he had faced death head-on, but he was still terrified of it. And he didn't have a lot of peace. And at this time, he was in a Bible study on the tour being led by a man by the name of Larry Moody... And one day, in talking about death to Azinger, Moody said this. Look up here on the screen. This is a great quote. He said, Zinger, we're not, in the land of, we're not in the land of the living going to the land of the dying. We're in the land of the dying trying to get to the land of the living. Azinger says at that moment, his entire, entire perspective changed. He realized that his mindset, even as a Christian up to this point, had been that I'm kind of in the land of the living looking to die some way he said, no, now I see it for what God intended it to be. I'm in the land of dying. Those who are dying, this world is wasting away. I'm trying to get to my final home, the land of the living. And it was at this point that he began to understand. Understand that death doesn't need to be denied, feared, or even avoided interminably. In fact, listen to what he would eventually write. These are life-giving words. Look up on the screen. He finally concluded, I've made a lot of money since I've been on the tour. And I've won a lot of tournaments. But that happiness is always temporary. He says, the only way you will ever have true contentment is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I love how he answers. He says, I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me and I don't have any problems, but I feel like I found the answer to the six-foot hole. Isn't that great? I feel like I found the answer to the six-foot hole. And so the question I want to leave you all with here today is if you found the answer to the six-foot hole. I think that's a question that all of us need to contend with in life. Because Billy Graham's right, let's let's go back to the beginning. Someday, all of us are going to get to participate in this thing called death. That's a given. We have not been able to find a solution to this thing called death as far as keeping these temporal bodies alive more than 80, 90, maybe 100 years, right? And the reality is so, all of us are going to die someday. That's just a given. But we still have to have the answer to the six-foot-hole problem. And that is, what is your eternity going to be like? And who's it going to be spent with? And how can you know that for sure? And through the eyes of faith, what the Bible says to you and me as we engage our heads as well as our hearts with God is that if you have come to a point in your life where you've accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord and where you walk with him on a daily basis, you can have assurance of where you're going and why. I love asking people, you know, in a more intimate moment sometimes, you know, that if you were to die today, you know, where would you go and why? And what blows me away is how some Christians, isn't this true how they respond? They'll say, well, I'm going to heaven. Okay, that's good. That's answer number one, right? But why? And what's the number one answer that even many Christians give? Well, because I'm a good person, right? And I go to church, and I serve at the Salvation Army, and I work in a soup kitchen, and I'm a pretty good guy to my neighbors, and they all know me as Christians, and I sit there and go like Pammy's doing right now, I just go, you know, how do you say it nicely? Like, you know, "Eh," wrong answer. But you just go, no, that's not true. That's not true. That's not correct. I mean, the reality is that might all be true. You might serve in a soup kitchen. You might be a very nice person, all that stuff. But the reality is you can do that before you know Christ, right? Think about that. I mean, there's lots of people who don't like God that are out there doing very nice things for other people, might be pretty good people. No, the reality is, is that you know you're going to heaven if you're a follower of Jesus because he paid the price for you on his cross. And it's because of what he did for you and I that we have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, if I don't miss my guess, there are some of us here today that uh, need to do some business with you when it comes to the assurance that we have of our death. And so, Lord, right where they sit right now, there might be some who've been coming to church here for a while, maybe even brand new to the church here, and they've, they've thought they were a Christian all these years because in America, if you go to any church and are a good person, you're considered a Christian, but maybe they're starting to see otherwise now, Lord. Maybe they're starting to see that that what makes us Christians and followers of Jesus is when we have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus that means we've come to a point in our life where we've recognized our sin and are ready to accept Jesus as Lord and as Savior. So Lord, if there's somebody that's ready to do that here today, then, then right where they sit, they just simply pray this in their heart of hearts. They say, oh God, thank you for loving me and making me. Thank you that you put me on this earth for the allotted time that I have. And, and, and Lord, I realize, because I feel the separation, that I'm sinful and fallen, and that I know I need forgiveness. I know that I need to establish a relationship with you. And so God, I thank you for sending Jesus, and that he is my sacrifice. He is the one who brings me to you through his death on a cross, and I receive him right where I sit right now as Lord and as Savior. And Thank you for the assurance of eternal life that I can't have, and I want to walk with you the rest of my days. Father, if there's somebody who prayed that prayer here today, I pray that they might have an initial burst of assurance that your word talks about, that initial joy, that fruit of the Spirit, that they are now yours and that you are now theirs. And that now for all eternity, nothing can change that. Father, for the rest of us who might be struggling with our faith, who might be Tina's in this world, that are uh, realize that someday we're going to die, but we're just terrified of the prospect or the process, God, I pray that you might give us the assurance that we need. I pray that we'd be meditating on 1 John 5, verse 13 there. And that, Lord, we might, you might bolster our faith, strengthen it, so that we might have the confidence that based on what you have done, not what we have done, but what you have done, we can know where we're going. So, God, we thank you for our time here together today. Thank you for your word and for the worship that set up your word. May we go out, Lord, in full assurance of faith now in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys next week.